Welcome to the third season of Courage Incorporated, produced by the Walrus Lab. Join me as we hear the courageous and powerful voices of leaders from across Canada. They have the incredible task of directing the future of Canada and the courage of the nation. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. Before we begin our discussion today, I want to acknowledge that Deloitte Canada and the Walrus Lab offices reside on traditional treaty unceded territories as part of Turtle Island that are home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We share this land together, and as leaders, we must do more to share in a safe, inclusive, and prosperous future together. For Canada to prosper in this century and beyond, we need to establish a new and respectful relationship with Indigenous peoples. To create a more equitable nation, we must act with courage by challenging the status quo and addressing the social, political, cultural, and economic gaps Indigenous peoples face. As business leaders, we must act with purpose and work closely with Indigenous leaders to find ways to share in the future prosperity of this country together. Our guest today has a strong spirit and an even stronger commitment to her position as Grand Chief of the Mohawk Council of the Gunawage people. She leads a community with its own municipal support services, education system, and its own health care. She is tasked with defining what reconciliation means for multiple generations, aligning a deep understanding of how to reverse the effects of climate change, implement a renewed self-governance strategy for her people, and lead groundbreaking economic strategy for current and future generations. The Grand Chief is a longtime Mohawk Council member, an advocate of women, youth, and two SLGBTQ plus rights, with reverence for her community elders and her community's history. It's a pleasure to talk today with the Grand Chief, Gusinahawe Skydeer. Thank you for being here, Grand Chief Skydeer. We appreciate the opportunity for the conversation. Now, as the first woman to hold the title of Grand Chief of the Mohawk Council, can you tell us what your journey to becoming Grand Chief was like? Well, I started my political career at the young age of 29 years old. Uh, before that, I was living in Orlando, Florida. I had left the community of Ganawage when I was around 20 years old to pursue dreams of playing uh, women's tackle football in America. And unfortunately, it didn't pay the bills the way I had envisioned. So I went back to school. I got my bachelor's degree in psychology. I graduated from the University of Central Florida in 2008. And then I moved back to my community and I thought I was going to embark on maybe some social work or, you know, in the field of psychology. And it didn't pan out that way. And I ended up working in a, um, a factory, tobacco factory for about nine months. And then I had heard that the election was coming up in July of 2009. So I, I ran for council uh, the first time I was successful. Um, and after that, you know, I, I got involved in portfolios and files that were very important to me, uh, education, uh, youth, and wanting to inspire and empower them. Um, our legislative um, body, uh, what we call the KLCC, Ganawage Legislative Coordinating Commission, and how we develop laws in the community was also really interesting to me. And over time, um, I was successful uh, every time I ran 
uh, for four consecutive terms. We have three-year terms of office here in the community. So, um, unfortunately, we had lost our uh, our grand chief um, in 2020, and um, you know, in the election in 2021, obviously there was a vacant seat for the position of grand chief. So I ran, and there was two other council members who were on the council at that time, and then two community members uh, who also put their name forward. And I was the successful candidate. And, you know, being the first uh, woman grand chief of Gunawaga in itself was, uh, you know, very honoring. Also, because I'm part of LGBTQ community, the fact that that didn't have a bearing, I guess, in people's minds when they came to the polls. You know, they looked at the merit of my work, the commitment, you know, the kind of things that I was trying to bring forward to the community to inspire change. You know, and I talked about, you know, the importance of um, inspiring young people that, you know, they could achieve anything they put their minds to. And, you know, we have a lot of uh, opportunity here because of our location and being so uh, proximal to the city of Montreal. You know, when I look at my educational background, I went to private school in the city of Montreal from grade seven to 11. I went to Vanier College. I got my associate's degree there. And then, as I mentioned, uh, heading to Florida and getting my university degree. So, you know, I think uh, the doors are open uh, for for youth uh, from my community specifically. And, uh, you know, the possibilities are are endless and no dream is too big. What have you learned about yourself and your community? Well, for myself, I've learned that um, not to fear anything, you know, not to worry about what people think about you or... Uh, any judgments they might have because, you know, life is too short and we only have one life to live. So let's make the most of it. I think our community is uh, is very progressive, as I mentioned, in terms of our thinking, um, our ability to adapt, you know, and because we've been able to develop an economy here based on a number of different um, industries and, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurial uh, spirited community members here, and we have such a self-sustaining community here in Ganawage. We have everything that runs the town. So we have our own police force, all Indigenous, um, predominantly from the community. We have our own hospital here, which is, you know, uh, what I'll call the gem of Ganawage, because what other First Nations community can say that they have, a, you know, 33-bed inpatient uh, there's a clinic, there's a pharmacy, a dental. Uh, we're about to embark on um, getting uh, x-rays. We have a neonatal clinic, prenatal. We have so much at the hospital. We have our social services in the community. We have our own ambulatory fire service, and it's all run by our people. So it's just amazing in terms of what we've been able to, to build here. And I'll have to say our foundational industry was ironwork. You know, we had so many men and women who left the community to venture out, uh, build up the United States skyline, whether it's New York, Boston, uh, you know, and then come back to the community and build homes and, and build a community. Then after that, over time, there was different industries, tobacco. Um, now we have gaming and we have so many other opportunities. And I, like I said, our location uh, is definitely 
a benefit because for us, we don't have any like natural resources. There's no mining or anything, but we do have about a hundred thousand cars that traverse our territory every day. So the potential for, you know, any kind of economic development, businesses, partnering with, uh, you know, people who want to be our allies now on the outside, um, you know, like I said, the possibilities are endless and I'm just so, you know, proud of our community and what we've been able to accomplish and develop. Now, let me move on to another very important and I suspect difficult topic. And that is that on June the 1st of 2022, Bill 96, an act respecting the French language, received royal assent in the province of Quebec. Please share with us the impact of Bill 96 on Indigenous peoples. Uh, I don't think people realize the difficulty in having to be trilingual, you know. Um, obviously, our Indigenous language is very uh, near and dear and important to us. And because it's there's been attempts to eradicate that from us, um, you know, to assimilate us into mainstream Canadian society and to, you know, displace us, I guess, from our homelands and our traditional way of life with that came the expense of our Indigenous language. And we're trying to revitalize that and reclaim that after, you know, Indian day school, Indian residential school experience. We're actually on the cusp of um, National Truth and Reconciliation Day, which will take place September 30th. So now looking at Bill 96 and that it's now deemed the official and common language of the province here, you know, we just look at it as another undermining and another, you know, attempt at, I guess, dismissing our original place here in in this region and our longstanding history and existence here. And it's really unfortunate. We had asked for, you know, some kind of a carve out or an exemption uh, from Bill 96. But uh, looking at it, really, it's the French charter, you know, going back to uh, 1978, when that passed, that's the origins of, I guess, where the issues are. And Bill 96 is basically amendments to it. Uh, to reinforce that French needs to be utilized in all facets of life, whether it's justice, uh, the economy and business in education, you know, so the way we see it is it's going to put an additional burden on our young people uh, to have to take five core courses in the French language. Uh, we have people from the community who are successful in being do uh, doctors or lawyers, uh, you know, professionals. So now to have to, uh, pass a French proficiency in order to be able to practice in the province becomes another challenge. Uh, so there's there's a number of areas. And, you know, for us, we're still hopeful that we could try to get some kind of um, momentum uh, that recognizes, like I said, our longstanding uh, presence here and that recognizes the fact that our language and our culture is actually in a more of a dire uh, situation than that of French. So let's see if we could petition whoever will be the successful government after the election on October 3rd to work with us to see if we could find some kind of solutions moving forward. Well, Grand Chief Steiger, thank you for your for your answer and thank you for your observations about that. And, and I can see where, you know, the it's a complicated issue, I know, for you and for your people. And I understand that you continue to try to bring in some ways a perspective of, you know, hope and evolution to the whole issue of Bill 96. And as there's, you know, ongoing sort of political process and the ability to keep engaging with governments, is there a way to try to do something about that? So, again, you know, I I respect the, the approach that you're taking there. 
And, and maybe we could sort of broaden it into a, a, a whole conversation about, you know, systemic racism has been embedded in our society and our history and ultimately in legislation and the process of reconciliation is dependent on acknowledging and correcting many historic injustices. From, from your perspective, what are the challenges that you see in this country's journey of reconciliation? And, and what more do you think businesses and governments need to do to create a more meaningful reconciliation process across the country? So definitely inclusion and understanding that, you know, as Indigenous people, we definitely have a understanding that we are our own nation. We don't want to view ourselves as Canadian. A lot of us, uh, especially here as Gahaga people, you know, we are already a part of the Rodinusuni or the Iroquois Confederacy. So we were a nation long before the creation of Canada and the United States. So we don't want to be labeled and put into, um, you know, one of these um, boxes, if you will, you know, and I think it's difficult for us that even to travel, you know, as a means to an end that we have to get a Canadian passport and we have to identify as Canadian citizens, that for us is very problematic. And it seems that everything we try to do uh, to create an economy for ourselves, we're always deemed as illegal or contraband or because we're not contributing to some kind of a tax base um, that for us is alien. We, we never had a taxation system. And as a matter of fact, before Europeans came here, you know, we didn't really have um, a means of, you know, monetary. There was a lot of barter, there was trade, you know, but now looking at the way things are progressing and it's all about the generation of wealth um, and, and keeping up with the Joneses and money means everything. Uh, and, and at the expense is our mother earth is suffering immensely. So for us, you know, there's, there's a lack of balance. And I think, you know, when we're trying to talk about reconciliation, we need people to understand, um, our perspective. And we say here that there's indigenous world knowledge here on Turtle Island that we want to share with people. Uh, because that's what was instilled in us in terms of our original instruction uh, as the red people, so to speak, you know, that we had an understanding of the interconnectedness of all things. You know, I said those words in our meeting about the Ohonda Gariwadekwa, the words that come before our else and how we acknowledge everything in creation, because it all has a role and a responsibility. It all has life. It all has meaning. But it, it seems like, you know, people take for granted, um, you know, just the beautiful things that we have all around us here on Mother Earth. And if we continue to expropriate and take and, you know, the rainforests are disappearing, the climate change, the global warming, um, she's letting us know that she's sick and that if we don't start to change the way we're doing things, think differently, see differently, hear differently then there is going to be no future for any of us to enjoy. And what's going to be the point of generating wealth if you can't even enjoy it or utilize it, you know? So I think we all need to have more balance in our lives and realize that, you know, that's not what the meaning of life is all about. You know, it's about connections. It's about relationships. It's about appreciating what you have. And if there was more equality in the world, we wouldn't have as much crime and violence and, you know, all the things that we're seeing nowadays in the world and how people are just acting crazy. I think they're really feeling oppressed and marginalized and that there's no no hope for them. 
So if you keep having that and you keep having the homeless situation continue to expand, and I'm not just talking about from a First Nations perspective, it's it's everywhere, it's around the world, famine and different things like that, you know, people really have to wake up to what's happening. So pulling it more back toward in this country specifically, there has been and there is still significant racism toward Indigenous people. And I draw the parallels to the Blacks and African people in America. You know, I just came from Florida and the South and and knowing the still deep-rooted racism that exists there is what I see and feel in terms of the deep-rooted racism that exists towards Indigenous people in Canada. So, you know, we definitely still have a lot of work, but we can definitely see that there's a shift and there's there's always change and that there's always room for, for more. So what we look at is, you know, equal opportunity um, for people to understand what our reality has been um, in 500 years since contact and how we've been displaced, removed from traditional homelands, uh, being placed on reservations, having our children stolen from us and forced into schools to remove the nativeness from them, to take their culture, to take their language, to try to make them Canadian. And what that means, the, the values and principles, and, you know, to try to, I guess, remove us from, from who we were so that they could take our land and take our resources. And, you know, so when you talk about the history, you know, like I said, uh, if that was the mentality of, you know, Europeans about dominion of land and uh, accumulation of wealth and, and, and all of that, uh, that's what was brought here. And it's unfortunate, you know, um, that's what the, the history and foundations now is built on on Turtle Island in the last 500 years. And we have to find a way to make sure the next 500 years are much better than what we've all endured. Grand Chief Skye here. I'd like now to shift to a discussion around climate. I know it's a topic you're very passionate about. With respect to the need to reverse the negative effects of climate change, what is at stake for Indigenous peoples in Canada? And based on the history and wisdom of Indigenous peoples, what do you see as some of the opportunities for us to learn and implement solutions together? There's definitely impact on our people, you know, from um, the impacts and effects of climate change. And in terms of solutions, like I said, uh, it's really a challenge because I feel there's still countries out there that aren't taking it seriously. And as much as, you know, certain uh, countries will take and make strides to lower the emissions and carbon and fossil fuel usage and so forth, if we're not all in it together, I, I don't think it's going to work. So, I mean, although Indigenous people here in Turtle Island can, you know, share our knowledge and so forth, it's not reaching other parts of the world, which is unfortunate. And, you know, we even had young Indigenous people participate in the, the GOP uh, last year. We're probably going to have them uh, participate again this year. But, you know, just trying to explain, like I said, from our perspective about the way we view the earth, the way we view our earth mother and, you know, that she is alive. I mean, everything around us is alive. And it was funny having a little discussion and a debate with a young teenager this week about how great it is that people are going to be able to live on Mars in the next couple of years with all the, you know, momentum of Elon Musk and so forth. And I'm like, yeah, but it's, it's fake, you know, um, you're going to mimic life on earth in a bubble on a planet far away from here. Why can't you just appreciate what you already have and work toward, 
you know, repairing and fixing what's already here. And, you know, it just goes to show, you know, the kind of mentality that we have is that we always want something more. We always want something better. We're always trying to strive for something, but, you know, I think we need to work uh, better at striving to take care of what it is that we already have because it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. I mean, if ever you've traveled the world, it's, it's a beautiful place and there's depending on where you go, um, you know, we need to ensure that future generations, cause that's an important principle for us. We always talk about the seven generations and the faces yet to come and the decisions that we make today should have impact on those children, seven ge- generations ahead. So that's why I'm saying, like, what are we doing all of this for um, in terms of generation of wealth and continued development and nonstop consumption? If in the end, it's not going to leave anything for the future, you know, and they're predicting that in, I don't know if it's 10 years from now, that the world population will be around 9 or 10 billion people. Like, how, how do you expect the earth to sustain in terms of food and all of that, like my dad says, people should start having babies now. Like we, we got to figure something out because otherwise, uh, you know, the future looks grim. And I don't even think for us now as indigenous people, we could really provide any real insight that could help change the wave and the tide that's already coming and been created. I hate to sound so grim, but... <laughs> Well, and Grand Chief Skydeer, you're you're certainly, I think, raising the important point for all of us about the way we think about our lives and what's important. And, you know, rather than obsessing about are we successful, the, the real question, I think, is are we useful? And are we actually contributing in a way that, as you say, perpetuates a, a quality of life for the next seven generations, not, you know, a, a consumptive life in today? And I think that's a really important insight for all of us to think about as we think about how we, you know, engage as people and engage as leaders in our, in our societies together. Grand Chief, we've talked about a number of really important issues uh, with respect to Indigenous relationships, with respect to your community. As you look to the future, what are some of the other important issues that you're focused on and what is the legacy you want to create for the future seven generations of your community? That's a good question. So, Right now, I think, you know, we're definitely working on ensuring that, like I said, young people uh, feel confident in their identity as Indigenous people. Because I think for a long time, like I said, there was, uh, you know, a real momentum and movement to displace us from that, from from who we who we are, um, as what we say, people and providing opportunities for them to, you know, learn, learn their language, learn the culture, be able to practice ceremonies and all the things that, you know, are important in our culture. Because once you have that foundation, you know, um, you're so much more confident and strong in your place in this world. So I I think, you know, inspiring young people um, to, to, to feel that pride, to, to understand um, some of those values and principles that I shared that come from, you know, our teachings, our, our oral history from our ancestors. And, you know, like I said, it's not always about economic opportunities. I mean, obviously we need money to survive in, in this world now, the way it's it's been created. But again, it's not always about 
accumulation of wealth. Uh, but it's just, you know, being able to provide for your families. We're looking at a lot more sustainable uh, food sources. There's a lot more people that are rest- uh, returning toward planting, harvesting, having and growing their um, their own food, having their own livestock and animals, uh, just living a more basic life, you know, and like I said, uh, putting more emphasis in, uh, on relationships. Um, because for us and seeing now after, you know, like I said, 500 years of oppression and colonization and all these impacts and imposition of the Indian Act and uh, government influences and all these things, there's there's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of hurt in our communities. So wanting to ensure and see that, you know, young people know that obviously what has happened to our people with the residential school, the Indian Day School experience is never going to happen again. Uh, to continue to educate Canadians and people around the world what Canada's role was in this attempted genocide of Indigenous people on our land. But to ensure that we don't, obviously we're never going to forget, just as African-American people is never going to forget what happened to them with slavery, as Jewish people will never forget what happened to them with the Holocaust. The thing is, how do you move forward now in this world and ensuring that you, like I said, know your place, that you create the best life that you can for yourself, for your people. Because in our belief system, we say that everybody is put on this earth with gifts, that they all have purpose, that they all have something to contribute. And I think what we want to do is try to foster, um, you know, better relationships between people, despite the negative history, you know, and I think we could all be a part of that movement and about those kind of solutions. Um, so that's the kind of messages that I bring in all of the different forums and workshops about working together with people, despite, you know, um, maybe all of the the negative history and the things and breaking the stereotypes. Cause you know, how could you blame indigenous people or, or point the finger at us saying, Oh, you know, they're all uh, desolate and drunks and drug addicts and, you know, they don't contribute to the tax base, so therefore they're just like a strain on our system and all this kind of stuff. Well, let's change the narrative and let's change the perspective that this was our land. We were all here first. People came across the salt water. We helped you to survive here. We taught you how to survive the long winters, how to how to live in this uh, environment. And all of the mines, the resources, everything that's here on these lands belong to us anyways. So in sharing the wealth of what Canada has belongs to Indigenous people. It's not taxpayer money that sustains our communities. It's those long-standing relationship and treaty understandings that, you know, this was all of our land. Even when it comes to the border, you know, uh, there was the Jay Treaty, which recognized that Indigenous people had right right of passage, that uh, there wasn't supposed to be a border that impacted us because it was all on our land and it traversed through our territories. So, Let's ensure that uh, people continue to recognize Indigenous rights for what they are, um, that, you know, it's not a uh, a burden <laughs> on people or, uh, you know, their tax dollars. And the fact that, you know, we, we definitely have a place here and we have knowledge to share. And when you get to know Indigenous people, I mean, we're such a fun, loving kind of people. You know, when we get to the heart of it, sure, we could be feisty, we could 
fight if we have to, you know, for what we believe in. And I think that's another thing, like when it came to pipelines or, you know, other things, sure, we're going to, we're going to protest. We're going to have blockades. We're going to do things to stand up for what we believe in, but it doesn't mean that we're terrorists. I've heard that uh, stated time and time again, you know? So just understanding where we're coming from, that we've, we've lost a lot and that we're going to continue to fight for our rightful place here in our traditional territory that we call Turtle Island, which is North America. Well, Grand Chief Skydeer, thank you so much again for the opportunity of sharing this time with you, sharing in your wisdom. And while I realize that there has been dark history that uh, we are, as all of us, continuing to learn about, I do want to thank you for what I ultimately see as some very hopeful messages that you give to us. There are unique gifts to every one of us. There is a unique opportunity for all of us to live in community together. And I think there is a tremendous amount of wisdom and insight that you and Indigenous leaders continue to try to share with us. And I think all of us need to do a better job of, of not only listening, but really understanding and taking action to be people that are useful and living a life of purpose. And again, I thank you for your ongoing leadership and your patience in trying to get your message out and share with us a better way to live in community together. I greatly appreciate the time for this conversation. And thank you again, uh, Mr. Sinclair, for, for your time and allowing me again to have this space to, to share, you know, and I think uh, it's a great thing what you're doing here and bringing, you know, different leaders uh, from across the country and providing different perspectives and uh, just honored to have been invited uh, onto your podcast. So thank you very much and we'll see you again. I look forward to that. Thank you so much. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. This podcast is a production of The Walrus Lab. Thanks to our producer, Camille Henning, and to our team here at Deloitte. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and tune in again soon to meet our next courageous leader.